0: So I'm, I'm going to tell y'all a personal story as a start this morning. Not, not very personal. Don't get uneasy. Um, <laughs> my wife actually FaceTimed me the other day while I was at work, which is kind of weird. Actually, I wasn't at work. I was on lunch, and she FaceTimed me. And that's out of character, and she's like, I need to show you something. She's like, I was in the bathroom cleaning her up, and look at this, and she pushed the toilet, and it. Tipped back and forth. Oh, that's a problem. Like, uh, I'll see what I can do about that. So we got a new wax ring and some new bolts. And I thought I'll fix this. When well, I listen, y'all, I've got I've got hands, but I'm not very handy. Okay, so I'll get this fixed. No big deal, right? You take the bolts off. You pull the toilet up. You put the new wax ring on. Oh, we got to take the old wax ring off. Put the new wax ring on. Set it. Put the bolts down. No big deal, right? <laughs> oh yeah. So there's a lot of water in toilets that you don't see. Okay. <clears throat> you don't know that it's there, but it is. It's there. <clears throat> so I mean, I literally could have just laid the toilet down. I mean, it had broken the plastic flange underneath so that it wasn't just nothing holding it down. The, the bolts hadn't broken. The plastic flange had broken. So I said, I'll just turn this flange around and use the different holes that were on the opposite side. Well, that worked, just so you know, okay? But there's water in toilets that you can't see. So I lay this thing down, and of course, you know, there's bad smells, and there's funky sights, and you're like, ugh. And then you look, and there's a river of water. Where oh, shoot, towels, this and that, you know everywhere. Well, bolts rust, and they're hard to get out, and I struggled, and I struggled, and I struggled. I'm not in the best physical condition of my life, so I'm bending over, and I'm twisting, and I'm turning, and I feel like I'm a pretzel, and I finally get it done. I don't know how long it took me. I am sweating like a pig in our 71-degree house, okay? Got it done. Got it set. Feeling accomplished. I even, I even cleaned the floor. Yeah, I know, right? I kind of went to a man. I'm like, for this floor, do you want to mop it? or She's like, you can just use those Clorox wipes. I'm like, oh, she wants me to do it. Okay. I even did that. Okay. And I got it all done, and I'm sitting there in the floor, and I'm looking at my toilet. I'm like, yes, I did this. I did this. Okay. And I'm sitting. Well, then I get up to wash my hands, and the sink won't drain because it's stopped up. Like really, really? Do you ever feel like you never get everything done? That's a little thing we call life, y'all. You're never done, are you? We've got two toilets. I bet the other one's going to break too. I might as well get ready and get it ready. And once it's messed up, then I have to fix the drain downstairs, and then the drain in the kitchen, and then the roof, and then the gutters, and then it's always something, right? Well, your wheelchair could break and you could fall out of your wheelchair trying to fix things, right? It's always something. So, we have spent six chapters with Nehemiah and we had one goal in mind, right? What was the goal? Build that wall. And by golly, after 52 days, they had a wall built. I don't know if it would have won any Wall of the Year awards, but it was done. It was finished. It was providential and miraculous, I think, that God had helped them get this wall done. Well, we got a problem, y'all. we got seven more chapters in Nehemiah, and the wall's built. So do you figure that's about the wall? Nope. It's always something. The wall was the first project that Nehemiah was going to be about. The wall was the big obstacle that had to be cleared, but there's a lot of other obstacles that come after that. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's always something. So what's next for Nehemiah and these folks that have come back from exile out of Persia after they had been exiled to Babylon? Back in 586 B.C. And by the way, we find ourselves at about 445 B.C. For our current setting, if if you're a historical person that wants to know that. So, these people who were in Jerusalem with newly built walls, what's next for them? We're going to find that out today. If you would stand, we're just going to read the first five verses of Nehemiah 7. But we'll hopefully, by the grace of God, cover the whole chapter. And it's a long one. But it's going to seem familiar, too. So if you would stand for the reading of the Word of God, these are God's words. God preserved them for us for a very particular reason. He wants us to know Him. And everything we need to know about God, we can either see in creation, which He created and is recorded in Scripture, or in the Bible. So we believe that these are the very recorded words of God for us. So, we approach Nehemiah 7, 1-5 with that in mind. Now. When the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes." The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are a faithful recorder. You have put it into the heart of men to record your words, to give us a written revelation of who you are because, God, that's always been your plan. And since before the foundation of the world, your plan included revealing yourself to people through the written word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we come to this word reverently, And we hold it in high esteem, knowing that these are not the words of any man. These are the words of God. So help us by the power of your Spirit to understand them. And help us by the power of your Spirit to implement them as we go out to the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. 7-1. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been... Appointed, comma. So, again, we left off last week with the work on the wall being completed in 52 days. And again, if the chapter just ended there at the end of chapter 6 and said, and everyone lived happily ever after, we'd have completion. We'd feel like, we're all right. That, that's, that's the way that story should end. The story should end with the walls built. And everybody patting each other on the back and praising God. Yay, the walls are built. We did it. And everybody rides off into the Jerusalem sunset. Everybody smiles, but that's not how the story ends, right? After all the hubbub and mayhem and hard work and problems and opposition, the wall was finished. But the book doesn't end there. We've got seven more chapters. And there's definitely a transition here. And I love... Anybody ever read Warren Wiersbe? He's a great Bible teacher, commentator. doesn't mean he's a common potato. It means that he writes common... Commentaries. Comment, comment. Some of y'all be thinking about that at lunch. Oh, commentator, I got it. Warren Wiersbe says this about this transition here. He says, A city is much more than walls, gates, and houses. A city is people. In the first half of this book, the people existed for the walls, but now the walls must exist for the people. It was time to organize the community so that the citizens could enjoy the quality of life God wanted them to have end of quote. That's really good. Now the walls must exist for the people. For these last 52 days, these people have existed for those walls. Working in one hand, weapon in the other, standing guard at night, people coming from all over and staying in Jerusalem to make sure that nobody gets in while these walls are being built. These people have lived for these walls. Now it's time for them to receive the benefit of this, But it's really easy to lose sight of the purpose of things and the purpose of projects, isn't it? Again, I was kind of pleased with my toilet right there. Just, it, I didn't care if anybody ever used it again. It was set. I'm awful to do that. I get so caught up in getting a task done that I forget that the task is for the benefit of people. And we're surely prone to this in the church, right? The church is made up of people for the glory of God and the good of those people. And I've got to say I'm guilty of having demonized the people of God in the past trying to do the work of God. And I've made the joke before, church would be a great place if it wasn't for the people. Well, there is no church without the people. Okay, We lose sight that we're doing this for us. We're doing this for the glory of God and for our good. We don't come here and sweep floors and prepare food and prepare messages and clean toilets just to get that stuff done. We do that so that we can all benefit from it and that God can be glorified in and through us as we do it. Now, it's time for Nehemiah to get life going in this newly walled city. Again, Jerusalem is the glory of God on earth in their minds. Favored and and prized by God Himself as the joy of the whole earth, the psalmist would say. So here, for life to get going, that means picking people for the everyday tasks that need to be done. You've got to do stuff in the city. Somebody's got to be responsible for opening and closing the newly built gates. And this points out a glaring problem in the city. Where are the people? We saw in a previous message that probably upward of 90% of the returned exiles had settled outside of the city in towns and villages as opposed to choosing to live behind the rubble and mess of what was the torn down walls. Well, the walls are rebuilt, but guess what? Ain't nobody moving into town. We know the priests and Levites lived in or near the city because their daily work would have been in the temple in the city behind the walls. So what we see here is that Nehemiah employs the available personnel to keep watch over the gates. And who's he, who's he pick? The singers and the Levites had been appointed. Now he's not saying there that the singers and Levites had been appointed to temple worship. They were they were there to be the gatekeepers. Okay, that's this, and I've looked at this a couple of times to make sure that these this the way this sentence is structured. It's kind of weird. So he says, "When I'd set up the doors and the gatekeepers." And it's almost like you could say, and for the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. Okay, it's important to notice that. Gatekeeping was a 24-7 job. And to find the people needed meant that some folks were going to have to pull double duty. Now these singers were singers and gatekeepers. And these Levites were now Levites and gatekeepers. We have no indication as whether these folks were happy to do double duty or not But that's probably by design. This is not about emotions. This is about what needs to be done for the benefit of the people of God and ultimately for the glory of God. God's people do what needs done, when it needs done, where it needs done. And when the workers are few, the few do what needs done. Now that's not real complicated, is it? Have you ever been in a place where you feel like you're doing everything all the time? Especially church? It's kind of sitting uneasy. Because either you have or you haven't. Because that's generally how it works. Either you feel like you're doing everything or you haven't done anything. Well, as the people of God, we do what needs done, when it needs done, where it needs done, for God's glory and for the good of the people of God in that place. When the workers are few, the few do what needs to be done. And if you need workers, what should you do? You pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into His field. God, send His people. And I figured Nehemiah and his cohorts were praying, God, stir up the hearts of the people, bring them into the city. We need workers. But they didn't just need workers, they needed leaders too. Verse 2, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Now some say that Nehemiah may have been planning a trip back to Susa. Remember he told King Artaxerxes how long he'd be gone and that's why King Artaxerxes let him go. So he's looking to hand off leadership to somebody else here but there's not a recorded trip back to Susa until chapter 13 which would have been in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes' reign, which is 12 years from now. So it would seem that right now Nehemiah is just simply assembling a leadership team to help lead and govern the city. We believe in a plurality of elders here. There's not one senior pastor. There's not one main pastor. There's not one lead pastor. The Bible talks about having a plurality of elders. And Nehemiah knows, I ain't running this show by myself. So I'm going to find some faithful men. He finds two men that he trusts. He finds his brother Hanani and Hananiah, who's described as the governor of the castle. Now we met Hanani early in the book. He was the one who had been to Jerusalem and reported to Nehemiah back in Susa that the city was in shambles. And there's no consensus in the commentaries as to whether or not Hanani was his blood brother or not, but my thinking is that he was. To be referred to as my brother when he is referred to seems to point to me that it's his brother like his brother brother blood brother, like they had the same mama or something, not just my brother, okay, from another mother not that guy I think it's his little brother, which again is it important? but now let me ask you this, if it is his blood brother you think it's wise to appoint your brother as your co-captain your co-governor depends on who your brother is, right? And I trust Nehemiah and his ability to lead and to identify leaders, but it just seems to me that it opens him up to accusations from those inside and outside. Nepotism, right? Oh, he picked his brother. I see why he got that job. Maybe What's wrong with? I don't think there's anything wrong with nepotism. If your brother's competent, pick your brother. Right? But maybe that wasn't even an issue back then. Maybe it wasn't you know, maybe that's just what they did. Either way, he picks his brother Hanani. And he picks another guy named Hananiah. He liked H's, I guess. And at this point, we don't know much about Hananiah, but what we do know makes him a good candidate for leadership and for good preaching, too. He was the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Castle charge. What's that mean? Well, let me tell you what that means. That means that he was responsible for a fortress that was near the temple area of the city. From here, they would guard the north wall of the city. History records that the north wall was a trouble spot and that it was hard to guard, so to speak, and was susceptible to possible attacks. So they set up a fortress there near the north wall. So this guy was experienced in protection. This guy was experienced in... Bad walls. So, yeah, that seems like a good idea to pick this guy. He was experienced in protection and overseeing strategies to help fortify weak areas in the wall. But that's not all we find out about him. It also says, for he was a more faithful and God fearing man than many. Now, wow. Listen to that again. Nehemiah picked him because he was a more faithful and God fearing man than many. Faithful and God fearing. Are these words that people would say about you? Are these reasons people would pick you for work in the church? For leadership? Faithful, God-fearing, and more than most people. Now, you think there are good characteristics to look for in a leader? I would think so. To do God's work, I would want a God-fearing, faithful man or woman. Nehemiah saw those characteristics in Hananiah. And when it came time to pick leaders, it was Hananiah who came to his mind. And that's pretty big. This is a picture of a guy who was there every time Nehemiah called for him. It's a guy who was doing things without being asked. It's a guy who did his job and did it well and took pride in it. It's a man of prayer and knowledge of the law. It's a reverent man. It's a guy who doesn't run away when things get hard. That's Hananiah. I like Hananiah. I don't know him, but I like him. I like his kind. And let me say to you this, his kind are rare, unfortunately. So am I like Hananiah? Are you like Hananiah? Let's think about it and we'll move on. Verse 3, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. So what's going on here is Nehemiah starts giving directions for how the city is to operate. And he's given those directions to his newly appointed leaders. First, he says that the newly minted gates of Jerusalem were not to be opened until the sun is hot. Hmm. Now why do you think that would be? be a couple reasons that come to mind pretty quickly. The sun would start getting hot which I know the sun is hot all the time. The sun is always like 64 million degrees, dude. That's not what I'm talking about. You start to feel the heat of the sun in Jerusalem at a certain time of day, okay? We'll say in the 11 to 12 area it starts getting hot. So he's saying don't open the gates of the city until it gets hot outside. Hmm. The time leading up to the sun getting hot would be what time? Morning time, right? Couple of different things going on there, okay? Some people sleep late. I doubt these people did, but some people sleep late, so you didn't want the gates open when people were sleeping. Morning would have been a time of a lot of activity before the sun got hot, right? Getting water, feeding and watering the animals, preparing food. And things we don't really know anything about in a non-subsistence kind of society. They live day by day. You did your work in the morning to prepare for the day, and if you didn't do it in the morning, you're not going to do it because the day's going to pass you by and it's going to be tomorrow. So there's a lot going on in the morning. People are busy. So who would be able to be standing guard and making sure that things were kept safe? There wasn't many people there, so they had to get their work done. So he said, keep the doors locked, until everybody's done with their stuff. Keep any non-residents out during that time. It's just a mindset of safety. Let the inhabitants of the city get their stuff done without people coming and going. And then, another reason could possibly be, when the sun got hot, how many people would be out and about? It's hot over there, y'all. We're right near the desert. Nehemiah also makes sure that those gates are kept locked until it's hot so that there wouldn't be a lot of people out milling around in the heat of the day. So it just shrinks the available pool of problems, hopefully. Nehemiah also makes sure that the guards who are standing guard be the ones who shut and bar the doors. Now that seems a little elementary, but is there somebody in your house that's responsible to make sure the doors are locked every night? When we leave this building, how many times have we come in and somebody's like, the back door was unlocked. Oh! So you got to appoint somebody. you got to make sure somebody is in charge of it. Or it may not get done. Did you check the back door? Yes. Did you check the front door? Yes. Okay, let's go. So he's just being pointed. He's being purposeful here. So the people who are standing guard were the ones who were supposed to shut and bar the doors. My house, it's me. I check the doors before I go to bed to make sure they're locked. And if I wake up the next morning and they're not locked... I didn't check the doors. Makes good sense to me. And then Nehemiah gives direction for appointing guards around the perimeter of the walls, not the gatekeepers, but just around the walls. He says to find people who live in the city and put some at guard posts and some keep guard in front of their homes. Kind of like when they were building the wall, remember? Guard where you are, guard where you live. Again, you've got people who have a clear vested interest in the safety and security of that particular area. It's kind of like an ancient neighborhood watch. right? And again, a good common sense way to handle who guarded where and when. And in verse 4, we see why things were more difficult than they might should have been. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Yikes. Now, we talked before about so many people living in the towns around Jerusalem and so few living in the city itself. We had also said in other messages that the wall was about a mile and a half in circumference. So it's a large area, but it's sparsely populated, and no houses had been rebuilt in it. None. Now, get that picture in your head. These walls are built, and the city is secure, but nobody's there to be secure in the city. So much of who is in the city are the priests and Levites who are carrying on the religious rites of the people who are coming and going out of the city. But there's no life in this city life. So now what? What do you do when you build a nice new wall but there ain't nobody behind it? (laughs) What? Have a grand opening, right. Well, the future needs some jump-starting if this city is going to come alive again. And what better way to think about the future... Than to look back into the past. Verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. We'll stop there right now. Nehemiah makes it clear that God did something to urge him toward these next actions. Then God put it into my heart God is the initiator. If God's going to do a work, God's going to initiate the work. We read Ephesians 2 this morning. You are saved by grace through faith and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We read Genesis 2. Who created man and woman? God did. God is the initiator. The uncaused cause of everything else. And if God is going to do a work, God is going to initiate it. You don't come up with high-sounding, clever ideas and say, I'm going to do this for God, and God get behind it. That's not how it works. God says, I want this done, and He puts it into the hearts of His people to get it done. Then God put it into my heart. Just like the folks who initially returned in Ezra 1 through 6, remember? Who returned to Jerusalem? Those who God had put it into their heart to return. Just like Ezra and his companions in Ezra 7-10. through 10. And just like Nehemiah in the first six chapters of Nehemiah. God puts it into people's hearts to do what He needs done. And here God in His divine plan stoking the heart of Nehemiah to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. That means here, 90 years after the first exiles had come back to Jerusalem, what we saw in Ezra 1-6, through 6, it was time for the people of God to plug into their roots... And see where they came from. So, where did they come from? Well, it's probably, I'm gonna guess, pretty providential that our friends in Ezra 2 kept a record of who made the journey from exile and back to Jerusalem. Now, you remember reading that long list of names in Ezra 2? Anybody? Most of y'all slept through it, right? I'm just kidding. Not really. Well, you just thought you were done with that list. It resurfaces here. And just in time for Nehemiah to find out who came from where and from who. So we're going to revisit again. Now, we might be tempted to just say, well, we've already covered this in Ezra 2. But let me ask you this question. Are we smarter than God? That's not a trick question. Some of you are thinking, well, there are gnats. I don't think I'd have done that. If God in His wisdom records something for a second time, what do we do? We cover it a second time. We're not smarter than God. We don't need to not revisit this if God put it in there for us to revisit. And keep in mind too that in the Jewish scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. So literally, these two listings of the genealogy are just several chapters apart. Now imagine reading that book, Ezra and Nehemiah, and you sit down and you're like, I just read this a few chapters ago. God must be saying something for him to repeat himself. So, since we're not smarter than God, we're going to read this list again. Okay? I'd really like to not read this list again, just to be honest with you. But we're going to do it, because it's in the Scripture, and we believe that every word is inspired by God. So here we go. This is what Ezra found written in the genealogy. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, not our Nehemiah today, by the way, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshon, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bayanah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah; 372, the sons of Era; 652, the sons of Pehoth, Moab, namely the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zekai, 760, the sons of Benui, 648, the sons of Bebi, 628, the sons of Azgad; 2,322, the sons of Adonikam 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2067, the sons of Aden, 655, the number of the sons of Adar, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashem, 328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Heraph, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem, and Netophah, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth, Asmaveth, 42, the men of Kiriath-Jerim, Keraph. Firah and Biroth, seven hundred forty-three; the men of Ramah and Geba, six hundred twenty-one; the men of Michmos, one hundred twenty-two; the men of Bethel and Ai, one hundred twenty-three; the men of the other Nebo, fifty-two; the sons of the other Elam, one thousand two hundred fifty-four; the sons of Haran, three hundred twenty; the sons of Jericho, three hundred forty-five; the sons of Lod, Hadad and Ono, seven hundred twenty-one; the sons of Seinah, three thousand nine hundred thirty the priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the sons of Jeshua 973, the sons of Emmer 1052, the sons of Pasher 1247, the sons of Harim 1017, everybody take a breath. Okay. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hadavah, seventy four. The singers, the sons of Asaph, one hundred forty eight. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adar, the sons of Talma, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, one hundred thirty eight. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasupah, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Labana. I like that, Lebana. The sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin. The sons of Nekoda, the sons of Ghazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Bessai, the sons of Manuam, the sons of Nefushesim. There we go. The sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Baselit, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha. I do kind of feel like God's sitting in heaven laughing, by the way. He's like, really? The sons of Barcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hadapha, or there's guys up there sitting and saying, that's not how you pronounce my name. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jayala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatiel, the sons of Pachereth, Hazabeam, the sons of Amon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmela, Harsha, Kerib, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deleah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, But it was not found there, and they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Almost done, y'all. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now, some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest's garments. And a partridge in a pear tree. Now... This is the same list that we saw in Ezra 2 when we went through Ezra. I will say this. There are discrepancies. Okay, There are differences, minor differences, but differences. Not so minor that it's just a pronunciation of a name. There are some different names and some different numbers in this list and in the list in Ezra 2. Now, your liberal college professors will say, Aha! Inconsistencies in the Bible Problems in the Bible You can't trust the Bible To which we go Oh my goodness Okay Let me tell you what There is nothing inconsistent here That God didn't plan Let me explain what I mean Okay I won't bore you with the specificity Of what's different If you want to know Let me know I can email you a list Because there are people out there That have done that type of thing We're not going to do it this morning Let me ask you a question and this is an easy question this is a Sunday school question right is the Bible inspired by God okay so how can there be differences if a perfect God perfectly inspired the writers of his word huh which list is right is one wrong some commentators say it's because of copyist errors that some numbers and names got changed a little. Well, maybe, but to me, that doesn't satisfy me. Okay? Because if copyists can make errors, could the people who recorded the words initially make errors and not have God's exact words? These are big questions. Okay? Others say it's possible that not all who left Persia made it. And some say that some who made it to Jerusalem didn't leave Persia. Which means there were probably deaths and births on the trip and soon thereafter when people arrived in Jerusalem. To which I would say I'm not exactly sure. But I do believe surely in a four month journey things changed between what was recorded when they left and what happened when they got there. And I'm sure they updated the registry and I'm sure some guy might actually say, hey, that's that's not... How you spell my name? And actually there were, now there are 276 of us, not 274. So there can be some big differences between a four-month journey from Susa to Jerusalem. And even more differences once you get to Jerusalem and you start updating the genealogy. So what we see from Ezra 2 to Nehemiah 7 is an updated genealogy. They're both right. And they're both significant. And this one's just more up to date. So that's the one that Nehemiah refers to. Now let me let me make something very clear here. God's word is not at fault here. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I know that. That's true. So is Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. And where do we know we have the word of God? In the Bible. So every word of the Bible proves true. Second Peter one twenty-one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. not a mistake Nehemiah 7 is not a mistake Ezra 2 is not a mistake now let me address this can there be copyist errors from the original manuscripts to our time? Yes absolutely it has happened it will happen look at your Bible app sometimes two words are joined together there's no space in the middle of them have you ever seen that in your Bible app? unfortunately it happens all the time When men get their hands in, yes, things are polluted, but God has preserved this word for us in such a state that it is perfect. Our English translations are not perfect. They're getting better all the time, but they're not perfect. In the original manuscripts, this is the very inspired words of God. And we have to keep that in mind as we study. And we see things that make us go, well, is one of these wrong? The answer is no. Neither one of them is wrong. There is no problem with God's Word. And whatever differences exist in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 are not mistakes that God or God's inspired men made. So back to this list. These are the people who had returned from Babylon slash Persia 90 years before our current narrative time. Now the question is, why would Nehemiah resurrect this list 90 years later? Well, we saw in verse 5 that God had put it in His heart to enroll people according to their genealogies. And if you're going to do that, you go back to the oldest record that you have, which would have been this document. This points out a couple of things necessary, listen to me, in doing the work of God effectively. First, keep copious records. Keep good notes, keep track of what's going on around you so that you can have it to refer to in the future. I miss the days people who took notes while sermons were being presented I used to sit and watch people They're like slow down, slow down. What happened to us? It's not important. It's just the Bible. I know this passage pretty good. I don't need to take notes. I'm not asking you to, to write down what I'm saying. But if God's doing something, is it not worth writing down? We need to be Pennsylvanians. That's a Herb joke. He's laughing at that right now. Keep copious records. Keep good notes. Keep track of what's going on around you so you can have it to refer to in the future. Our old pastor used to say all the time, no notes means no intentions you remember less than half of what you hear. And if you write it down, you can refer back to it and say, look what God did back in 1997. I remember that when you read it. Also, it's one thing to record the present as it's happening, but it's also necessary to refer to the past while what you're doing right now. We see this so plain in what Nehemiah is doing, referring to the past for guidance in the present with an eye on how this affects the future. We must be about the work in front of us, but we'll be much more effective if we're learning from the past as we're planning for the future. We don't live in the past. We don't live in the future. But we live in the present with a keen awareness of the past and the future. Here, in referring to this 90-year-old genealogy, Nehemiah shows us that we are not isolated from what's happened in the past and we are greatly indebted to those who have gone before us. We are not independent of them. Quite the opposite. We are unquestioningly rooted in them and what they've done. We cannot divorce ourselves from those who have come and gone before us. And I think our culture is guilty of this gross sin. We should not demonize the people from the past as if they were stupid or primitive, and that we're so much better and smarter and more cultured than they were. No, we learn from their mistakes and their successes, and we press forward into the work before us equipped with what we need thanks to their hard work before us. Sorry, this is a sore spot for me. Everybody today looks back at everything everybody did in the past, and they rewrite history and they revise history, and everybody was bad because they did bad things back then. Well, duh. What are we doing today? We're doing bad stuff too. And we're not better than they were. You say, well, we've got a a, a better civilization now. No, we don't. No, we don't. Sorry, I'll get off that. I'll leave it alone. When we refer to the past as all wrong or bad, that's just foolishness. And here Nehemiah, the people of God would have swelled with pride at the mention of their ancestors and their family who made the initial from Persia to Jerusalem. Can you imagine it? That was my great-grandfather. Those are my people. My people come from that land. My people contributed to that work. Hey, we should beam with pride at our past. And I know all of us have black, dark things in our past and people that we would just assume not be in our family. But we learn from their mistakes when we move forward. And this enrolling in the genealogy would tie these current residents to their predecessors and encourage them to carry on the work that had been started 90 years ago. It would also tie them to God's meta narrative, the redemptive purpose overarching all of creation, and so that they could see their place in that plan now. And we have to do that. How many times does the Bible say, remember? remember, remember, remember. And I've said this before here, and I'll say it one more time, at least. You want a miracle? Look at Exodus. That's your miracle. You say, well, I wasn't there. God was. The same God who parted the Red Sea exists for you now. And He has recorded what He has done all throughout history so that you can say, what my God did. He may never part Another sea. But we know he did it at least once. He parted the Jordan River once. Those are your miracles, too. So remember don't forget the past and know God's overarching goal in history. This is God's work, and it will be accomplished by God's people for God's glory, and it will be the greatest thing in all of history. So now we just have to see how we can get God's city repopulated back here in Nehemiah so the glory of God can be seen in its streets once again and hopefully for the rest of the future last verse so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their towns and when the seventh month had come the people of Israel were in their towns so all being said we don't see a rousing response to the genealogy enrollment. instead what we see here is what we saw and knew before, people lived where they lived and where was that? In their towns. Not much has changed yet. The chapter ends with a mention of the seventh month. Now what's a seventh month? It's a very significant month for the Jews. It would correspond to a time period for us that ran from mid-Oc- mid-October to mid-November. But for the Jew, it was the holiest of months. It's kind of like that period for us from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Okay? That's, that's how they thought of the seventh month. In the seventh month, they were to celebrate their Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You might remember the Feast of Tabernacles or booths that we saw them celebrate in Ezra once they had gotten back to Jerusalem where they live in the huts that they build out of palm branches or whatever, whatever wood they can find. So there's a lot about to happen, and Jerusalem is very important in the religious observances of the seventh month. So now the walls are up, and the city's getting ready to bustle with activity. There's a lot about to happen, and a lot of it is based around the religious observances and devotion to God. So buckle up. Things is about to get interesting in chapters 8 and following. But for today, we look at application from chapter 7. And I got three, just three, okay? I repented of my six application points last week. Or this week I've repented. I got three L's for you this morning. Leaders, lists, and legacies. If you keep taking notes, that might be good to write down. Leaders, lists, and legacies. Application from Nehemiah 7. First is leaders. We've spent a lot of time focusing on the synergy and cooperation of the people. Through this work on the walls, but any work that is long and or lasting has leaders that pave the way. Who's been the leader up until now? Nehemiah's been the leader. Okay? He's been the one, the focus, who's who's just made, he's the one main cog that's made all the other gears turn. God has always worked in and through his people in congregations and groups, and he has always had people who were appointed to lead these people. We've certainly seen Nehemiah leading in extraordinary ways through chapters 1 through 7. And now, he's spreading that responsibility and recruiting helpers in the leadership responsibilities. And who does he look to? He looks to his brother, who he knows very well. And he looks to this God-fearing man named Hananiah. He looks for people that he's familiar with and knows inside out, good and bad, maybe... Hanani was his older brother and Hanani used to give him noogies and push him down and give him wedgies and beat him up. But they grew up together and they loved each other. And this guy Hananiah, faithful and God-fearing. So those are good characteristics to look for when we're talking about leadership training. And listen to me. We have not done this well here. We have not trained leaders to become leaders here. And we need to. So let me just say... We're looking for leaders. We're looking for people who we're familiar with, who we know inside and out. We're looking for God-fearing people who are faithful to be leaders. We need leaders. Leaders for what? Leaders to lead in organization, leaders to lead in teaching the Bible, leaders to lead in community groups, leaders to lead in everything. We need leaders. We need faithful leaders. We need God-fearing leaders. We need leaders who we know inside and out. If we're going to build and choose leaders, we should be looking to those closest to us in our everyday relationships. We don't form a pulpit search committee and go out there looking for somebody else to lead. That's crazy to me. And I'm not just jumping up and down on other churches. Why would you do that? Wow. Why would you go out there and look for somebody different when there's people here? Sorry, that's not in the notes. It blows my mind. Let's go out and hire somebody from outside because that's going to work. Sorry, I'll stop that. Those closest to us, especially in our families, should be targeted for leadership development. And husbands and dads, I'm especially talking to us. Are we developing our wives and children to take on more and more responsibility so that they can take care of themselves, especially if something should happen to us? Of course, we can't train leaders if we aren't leaders already. Husbands and dads, you are leaders. So lead and train your family to be leaders. And then when it comes to church leadership, we have to be constantly training and preparing future leaders. And what do we look for in leadership qualities? We look for faithful, God-fearing people. 1 Corinthians 4 says this, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 1-2 through two, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God places a high premium on faithfulness why it says in our membership covenant that you're going to be here. That you're going to work in the church. That you're going to do the things that are necessary for us to meet together and worship together and do the things we do together. It don't cost a thing to be faithful. I'm there. And if I can't be there, I'm going to let you know. Listen, I don't need to know everywhere you go. If you're not here one Sunday, I'm not going to go, oh no. But if you're gone... Three Sundays out of four, we're going to start to worry and we're going to want to know where you are. Why? Because we love you and we want to be worshiping with you. Faithfulness means I'm here. And God places a high premium on faithfulness. Faithful men and faithful women make faithful men and faithful women. And God's servants must be faithful. Why? Because God is faithful. Are you glad God's faithful? I'm glad God's faithful. And in fearing Him, we long to be like Him. So this church and all of God's church needs faithful, God-fearing people willing to lead and sacrifice for the sake of the work of God. You want to be a leader? We need leaders. So show yourself to be faithful. Show yourself to be God-fearing. And let us know you inside and out. And let me tell you what, there's plenty of things to lead in. So leaders... Lists. Sometimes it's the little things that make a big difference, isn't it? Today we saw Nehemiah refer to a list that the original exiles had made of who came back and what was given for the temple service. Now, 90 years later, this helped Nehemiah and his mates register people according to their genealogies, which would help kickstart the process of establishing pride in family and in God's work overall. That one little detail from 90 years before made a big difference. Now, our application point for this is pretty simple and straightforward. Write down what God does in your life. I'm not just talking about notes here. It can be a journal. It can be on your device, your tablet, your phone, your computer. Just a little bullet point list. It can be your prayers that you write down. That's a really good habit that I'm not doing right now. It doesn't have to be elaborate or super complicated. Now, if you want it to be elaborate and super complicated, that's cool. Just make sure you post it on Instagram for everybody else to see because that's important. I'm just kidding, y'all. But seriously, look at your Bible. You have that Bible because about 40 people wrote down what God was doing in their lives and the lives of the people around them at that time. God has made it so that His specific revelation was written down in a book. God is pretty high on writing down what He does. Now, you're not going to be writing new books of the Bible or anything, but time after time after time in the Bible, God says, write this down. What did he tell the, the Jews when they moved to the Promised Land? Uh, erect these stones so that when people ask you, why are these stones here, you can tell them this. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about standing stones. We're talking about memories. Write it down. Anybody ever journal? People journal now. It's a great habit. And I'm saying publicly, I'd like for you all to hold me accountable Ask me, are you journaling? Because I want to be. I used to. And I look back through those journals and it is a blessing because I see what God did. I forgot that God did that. I forgot that He brought us through that deep water. I'm praying here, God, please, I'm dying. And then I'm praying over here, God, thank you for delivering me from the shadow of death. Write it down. Make it a family thing. Have a family memory book, what God has done in our family. God blessed us... He delivered Lily from this thing with her shoulder all these years ago. He's uh, graduations, right? I mean, mark it down, write it down. Y'all write that stuff down yesterday. That's fantastic. And now you've got it, it's there. Preserve on purpose what God is doing in your life. Because I'm telling you what, you're going to forget. And when it comes up again, you can look back and say, God did this before. It's hard, but I believe that God can do it again. Write it down. Habakkuk 2.2. Or should I say (laughs) Habakkuk? And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I love that. Habakkuk's like voicing his concerns. And God says, all right, I'm going to answer you, but you write it down because I want people to be able to read it, and after they read it, I want them to be able to run. I want it big, I want it plain, I want it clear, so that there'll be no confusion. Write it down. It's a good habit. You're like, well, I'm not a good writer. You don't have to be. God healed me. God gave me a raise. God helped me find a job. God helped my kids get their room clean today. Miracles never cease, right? Write it down. Make a list of it. And don't do it as a burden. I'm to write this down. Jason said write this down. Yeah. Leaders, lists, and legacies. What's a legacy? A legacy is something transmitted or received from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past. And my simple question to you this morning is, what will you pass on to those who will come after? I hope that Providence Bible Church is firing on all cylinders if Jesus doesn't come back in a hundred years. And that they can look back on the legacy that we left them of the Bible and the people of God and loving people and serving the community and preaching the gospel. I pray that that's the legacy that they can look back in in a hundred years. They're still standing up every Sunday and saying, equipping and mobilizing the saints to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Because that should never change. And I hope that that's the legacy that we leave our kids and their kids, and their kids, and their kids. And my question to you this morning is, what kind of legacy are you leaving for your progeny? What will your kids say? Dad was always saying this. One thing I knew about my dad was this. Mom was always about this. And mom did this well. And mom loved the Lord. And mom and dad loved each other. That's a legacy. And these folks in Ezra 2 wrote down a bunch of names and a bunch of gifts and they passed on a legacy for these people 90 years later. And it's a legacy of sacrifice, hard work, fearing God, and faithfulness. Close with this. Paul says to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure wells in you as well that is a legacy I don't know how far you can trace your family tree back as far as redemption and who knew the Lord and who didn't I tell my kids all the time and they're saying he's going to say this again me and your mom love each other my mom and my dad love each other my wife's mom and dad love each other their parents loved each other. My wife's, my my mom and dad's parents loved each other, and there is a legacy of togetherness and stick-to-itiveness and marriage and God honoring loyalty in our family. That's a legacy. Some of y'all don't have that, and I'm don't make any worse than me. Start your own legacy today. Maybe your grandchild is somebody like. Timothy, who had your faith passed down to them. You don't have to have a legacy to leave a legacy. And you can leave a better legacy than the one you were left. Be the person who changes that family tree. Well, my dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic, then don't be an alcoholic. God is sovereign and God is omnipotent. And God can sovereignly work all things together for your good, right? Look to Him and look at the legacy that He's left us from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And know that our legacy is eternal and seek to pass that on to your kids and their kids and their kids. And who comes after us in this church and who comes after them and who comes after them and who comes after them. Don't live just for the present. Live in the present with an eye on the past, preparing for the future to leave this legacy. Because you know what? This comes back to the beginning. You're never done. You're never finished. There's always something else to do. There's always another generation to bless and to encourage. I don't care if you're 80 or 8 or 4. There's somebody coming after you. Leave a legacy for them. Your work is never done. When God's done with you, He'll take you out of here and you'll be with Him forever. So live in order to leave a legacy. Leaders, lists, and legacies. Let's pray. God, you've never stopped working and you will never stop working. So we trust you to do in us and through us what we can't do ourselves. We trust your providence. We trust your grace. And we trust, God, that you have something in store for us and those who come after us. So we will work with an eye on that day with an eye on the past so that we can live now in such a way as to bring you glory now and forever. Have your way, God. Help us to be faithful. Help us to fear you. And help us to love and serve each other. We ask in Jesus' name. We we'll just stand and receive a benediction. A different benediction than we've had in the past, but I just this is where I went. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.